0: Welcome to the REACH College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gass. The people of Israel have become just like the people of Sodom. She was nameless and faceless and didn't matter to anyone. There's this story about a, uh, this emperor, this king, um, that classically, like all kings, he becomes self-absorbed, right? Self-centered, um, spends most of his life really being catered to by everyone around him, Um, And naturally, that kind of power and treatment where everyone is is bending over backwards to make you happy, it can go to your head, right? It can make you uh, self-centered. Well, one day as this emperor is going about his day, somebody gets in his way, and he has them thrown out a window because they threw off his groove, (coughs) So how many of you know what what a narcissist is? Yep. Right? Narcissism is this idea this like grandiose, self-centered uh self-important image, right? It's like a building up of of you, right? And that's that movie The Emperor's New Groove, right? It's you start out and you see this character who is totally self-absorbed right uh, there's this flashback in the middle of of him starting to tell his story which is the tone of his story off the bat is that he's the victim right like all all the bad things that have happened to him in this movie but the the one of the scenes that's interesting or one of the clips is it comes back to him as a baby his toy breaks and as soon as his toy breaks like 50 people try to hand him the same toy like another one of it right so and then he's just like oh Sorry, we didn't need to see that. Moves on. Well, obviously, is that kind of attention and catering and self-centeredness? He's the world revolves around him. He's the most important person, right? That's that's essentially what happens in the head of somebody who is a narcissist, right? They they think of themselves only. Now, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard the name Robert Hendy Freigar Anybody that name ring a bell? So Robert Henry Fregard. if you look him up, uh, he's a, a con man, a British con man, and he, he was made famous by uh, I think it was a, either a documentary or a podcast, but essentially he conned uh, five women out of their entire lives. Like as in, he went to these women and he built up some trust and he told them that he was a secret agent. And that he was working on this big case, and that he was, you know, there's, there's spies everywhere, and there's, even the police have double agents. And he scares these women to the point where, and puts them in these situations where they literally cut off their families, they abandon their lives, um, and they did whatever he said. And, and, and at one point, he has multiple of these five women, like, living in circumstances and in, in hiding that, and essentially they, they don't even realize, like, how convoluted their thinking is to the point where, like, they found one of these women, uh, Condor in Britain. They find her in, like, in some other country in Europe, essentially, working as a maid under a false identity, scared, waiting for him to come back. Like, he hadn't been around in months. She's given him all of her money, but she works as a maid in this house because she's scared to death that, uh, you know, the, the people that are looking for her, they're going to come get her. And this guy's busy, you know, like conning the next victim, but he's just ruined this person's life, and they don't even realize like that they are that they are being conned. That their entire world at this point is make believe, right? And and uh, that oftentimes that's similar to the process by which sex trafficking occurs, right? So if you've heard of the term gaslighting, right? Now we we made that popular for the wrong reasons because that term really is just a way to not be wrong about anything in an argument. Anytime I'm ever proven wrong in an argument, you must be gaslighting me, right? That's like, that. that's not what gaslighting is. Gaslighting is this manipulative um, process by which you take somebody and you, and you constantly undermine their rational thought to the point where they can't, they question even their own innocent motives, right? And what we see a lot... Um, whether it's this con man or whether it's sex trafficking victims is that someone they know and trust is actually out for their harm, is actually trying to take advantage of them, is trying to um, enslave them uh, in the case of sex trafficking quite literally. Well, the opposite of that um, that is clearly the epitome of the opposite of, of the love of Christ, right? This, this effort by another human being to enslave these people, to enslave their victim to uh, whether it's just this fake life, this fake world, um, or, um, or or to manipulate them literally into slavery uh, and and traffic them around the world right that's the opposite of what Christ does for us that he frees us that he sets us free and he loves us even more than his own body right even more than his own motives now there's a man um, uh, a pastor who tells a story about being in New York um, being in New York walking down the street and seeing a, a, like a mugging taking place in an alleyway and that kind of thing is actually it's so common in New York um, that people often don't don't take notice or don't stop to do anything about it um, and that's we get that advice of if you're being mugged or if you're being hurt you yell fire from this mentality of people to not want to engage a situation that's like potentially violent or hazardous but everybody wants to watch a fire so if you're in danger you'll fire because then people will come to you instead of going oh uh, I didn't hear anything and kind of slipping away well, this man, he's walking down the street. He sees this mugging happening in the back alley. And the, his first instinct is to do this typical kind of New Yorker thing. He And he and he—he kind of starts to turn his head away. And he's thinking, you know, that's none of my business. And I can't get involved in that. And then he thinks to himself, you know, that's it's not right. I got to see. I have to I, like Christ commands me to love people to, to, to put my body in. In a danger for them, right? So he turns into this alley and he runs at these guys and he says, "Hey, stop! Hey, stop! What you're doing?" And luckily for him, instead of turning on him, they just they just run. I don't know if they thought he was a cop or what, but they immediately just break, right? And he he starts to help this woman who has been being beaten and mugged up, and she looks up at him and she says, "Dad," and this is his adult daughter who lives in the city just so happened to be in this dangerous situation getting mugged in this alleyway and he almost passed right by her and he stopped instead and he saw her he saw someone in need and you think if he knew that was his daughter he would have immediately run towards them of course he would like everyone would for their own family but he had to make a decision for somebody he thought he didn't know and if he doesn't his own daughter is the one who reaps the consequences. Who is hurt because he doesn't see need. He doesn't see people to love. Last week, we talked about Judges 17 and 18, and what we saw was a, a reli- the religious failing of the people of Israel. So we've left the judges. Like We've been talking about the famous people, if you will, the judges, and we've been plotting along through this story of Judges, watching this downgrade of the people of Israel, and now, all of a sudden, starting in verse 17 and all the way through the rest of the book, there's no more Judges. We're just going to look at the people. Well, last week, we looked at the Danites, and we saw this religious failing. Why? Because the people didn't know God. They didn't know who God was. They, They were just unaware of even how to worship Him correctly. And so because of that, they commit these evil deeds, and they actually put it in God's name. They're like, well, you know, I'm worshiping God by doing X sin, right? Well, today, we're going to look at a moral failing, right? So last week was a failing to love God and to know Him. And this week, the book is going to begin the last, the last essentially, uh, story, and it's, it's chapters 19, 20, and 21, and we'll do 20 and 21 next week. But it's going to begin this story that is showing us a failure to love others. See, this story is about how the people, called by God, if you look at the law, the law is designed to show us how to love other people. It's a law about how to interact and show the love of Christ to the people and the world around us. It's a law that separated the people of Israel in their attitudes and behaviors to demonstrate who God was. And what we're going to see today is that they have begun to fail... To love each other. And they look now just like the Canaanites. They look just like the, the way the Canaanite world behaves, the way that the world, the sinful world around them behaves, they look identical to that. They have drifted so far from God. And the question I want to ask you is does your love look like Christ's or are you essentially loveless? Because any semblance of love That doesn't look like the love that Jesus Christ has for us it's not real it's a shadow of what real love is meant to be so you either have a love that mimics Christ's likeness or you're loveless so look at me uh, or look look at uh, at the scripture if you will we're gonna look at uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 19 and we're gonna see that the world knows what love looks like in theory but it's really just selfish So chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine found him repugnant, and she left him and went to her father's house in Bethlehem of Judah and remained there for a period of four months. Then her husband set out and went and went after her to speak gently to her in order to bring her back. Taking with him his servants and a pair of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. Okay, so the first thing we see is the refrain, right? So we saw the refrain started in chapter 17, and this is our third time seeing it. Uh, but this is really the theme for the entire book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. So that refrain is now, now that we had it in, the, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, it's become a literary tool to stoke a certain kind of viewpoint. That viewpoint is, this is what everybody acted like because they weren't following the king, right? And who's the king? It's not Saul. It's not David. The king is God. The people of Israel were supposed to see God as their king. That's why this series is called Kingless, because this is how people act when God is not their king. Right. So there's no king in Israel and we see a Levite. Now, the Levite is going to be the vehicle for this story. And he is the uh, he is supposed to be an example of someone who should know who God is and how to act. Right. The Levite, because the Levites were what? They were the tribe drawn closest to God They rallied to God during the golden calf incident in Mount Sinai when everyone else was doing idol worship. And so as a reward for that, they have been given the responsibility of teaching the rest of the nation about God, right? So the reason the Levite is the main central character is because he should know the right answers. He's the example of what it means to follow God and how that should look. All right, I want you to keep that in mind. And then we're going to see that this Levite has a concubine. Now, that word is traditionally translated as uh, like a prostitute that is essentially married um, that's not quite uh, there's sometimes where that's more of the emphasis and point of that word what what's happening right now is you're supposed to see this as a second class wife so this is a wife but not with all the rights of a normal wife um, in the Old Testament obviously the the ancient Near Eastern culture polygamy was a was a thing um, and Back then, part of the reason polygamy was essentially tolerated by God is because women had so few rights. Women had so few rights that actually uh, they were destitute and poor if they were not married. So men marrying multiple women actually allowed men who had all the rights and all the power in that period in time uh, to to support and care for women, right? Um, Now that doesn't make polygamy right, but that's a different conversation, all right? Uh, There's... The Bible does not advocate for polygamy. All we're doing here is we're recording what happened. We're not talking about whether or not that is good or bad, right? So he has this concubine, this uh, second-class wife, right? Now, um, this wife. Now, there's different translations. Some of your Bibles might say that she was unfaithful, or played the harlot, or played the, pro- or or was a prost- or prostituted away from him, something like that. Uh, my Bible translates it as she, she found him repugnant. The best translation of this is actually to understand that she's mad at him. Now, the description of her being unfaithful is to say that she left, right? Because in marriage, you're, you've made a commitment to a person. So when you, just cause you get in an argument or even a long term or a difficult argument, you don't leave, right? Now, that's not to say that Um, there's no indication at who's at fault here. But the point is that whoever was at fault, they are in an argument, and she has, in an act of faithlessness, she's left, right? She's gone away, she's gone back to her, her father's house, and she stayed there for four months. Now, the Levite, he sets out to speak to her gently. Another translation for this is to speak to her heart. So he's gone back to sway her to come back to him. Now this looks good. It makes him look like, you know, I mean, he's not just going to claim his property, which he could, right? Because again, women in this period of time they don't have any rights. But he instead he's gone back to sway her, to reconcile with her, to speak to her heart. Now, again, this looks good, except that it actually is just it's a it's a selfish motive with. Uh, with a smart answer, right? He knows that in order to keep her from running away again, he needs to actually sway her to come back. But he's setting out essentially to reclaim property. He's setting out to reclaim something that's his that he, you know, he didn't want to leave in the first place. And he's going to do that in the most tactful way imaginable because it's the smartest way to have the have the outcome he wants, right? And I want you to see that because the the picture that we're gonna get of the first people in this story is overwhelmingly uh like a happy picture. Like like, see, everyone's good here. It's all happiness, right? But it's really not, right? And I want you to see the layering of what's really going on. So he's going to get his second class wife. And he's going to sway her because he wants what's his back. Look at verse four. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him, and he remained with him for for three days. So they ate and drank and stayed there. Now on the fourth day they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to to his son-in-law, Strengthen yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Please be so kind as to spend the night and let your heart be cheerful." However, the man got up to go, but his father in law urged him, and he spent the night there again. Now on the fifth day, he got up early in the morning, but the girl's father said, Please, strengthen yourself and wait until late afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man got up to go, along with his concubine and servant, his father in law and the girl's father said to him, Behold now, the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Behold, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here, so that your heart may be cheerful. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey and go home. Okay. In the ancient Near Eastern custom, hospitality is huge. Why? Because back then, travel wasn't facilitated just by a a convenience store every so many miles that you can just refill your gas tank and get a Reese's sticks, right? The, The key is that people would die if nobody took them in on the road. So ancient hospitality huge thing. You, you went places, you stopped, people brought you in, they fed you, they took care of your needs, they refreshed your camels or horses or whatever you were using, and then they sent you on your way again. So, um, this is really normal. And you get the picture from the fact that the first three days is mentioned just in passing, that that's almost just like what would have been expected. Uh, you know, when you go to see family that you don't see very often, they don't want you to just swing by for the night, right? They're like, no, come in, stay a while. Let me host you. Let's catch up, right? It's a family reunion. He probably doesn't see his father-in-law all that often. So his father-in-law is happy to have him. First three days, totally normal. But then what happens? The next day, he starts to go above and beyond. He says, well, stay just a little longer. Let me just, let me give you a little bit more. Refresh yourself with me. Eat, eat and drink with me. Let's, you know, let's keep catching up, right? And this looks good, right? It looks good because it's over the top. It's above and beyond. But what happens? On the last day, they leave late in the evening. Now, wh- wh- what are your parents saying when they know you got a long drive ahead of you and you're still at their house? Hey, do you, do you need to get on the road so that you're not, I don't want you driving late. I don't want you to be up late. I don't want you you know, be fall asleep at the wheel, right? Because there's this natural concern that's like, I want you to be okay as you travel, right? But that's not what's happening here. Even though, once again, this looks really good. This is over-the-top hospitality. Hospitality is important, but it's so over-the-top that it actually puts them in a risky situation. It actually p- forces them to instead leave on a journey in, a, in under hazardous conditions. Essentially traveling at night in a world where traveling at night was not a good idea right? Um, so, so again, there's another layer to what's happening here. Now look at verse 10. But the man was unwilling to spend the night, so he got up and left, and he came to the place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. And with him was a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, Uh, The day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come, and let's turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the the night in it. However, this master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not the sons of Israel. Instead, we will go as far as Gibeah. And he said to his servant, Come, and let's approach one of of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along their way... uh, They passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to enter and spend the night in Gibeah. Um, uh, When they entered, they sat down in the public square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay. So, what happens first? They come along Jerusalem, but it's before Jerusalem's been liberated. It's a Gentile city. It's a Canaanite city at this point. So, they come along Jerusalem, and they say, uh, "Well, we should probably stop. It's getting late." Uh, and he says, "No, we're not going to stop in a, in a Canaanite city because because I don't trust them. They're not going to They're not going to treat us like their countrymen. They're not going to have the hospitality I'm looking for. They don't know how to act. We're going to keep going a little bit further. So they get instead they get to Gibeah, and what happens? No one takes them in." Keep in mind, this is a normal custom for you to go, into a, uh, a, to go to a city gate and clearly be a visitor, a traveler. Somebody coming in from their fields in the evening would have stopped and said, Hey, do you need a place to stay? Do you, do you need a home? Do you need rest? Um, I can feed you. I can, I can wash your feet, right? That would have been normal. So they know that's normal. They know that that's how people are supposed to act, but they want to go to an Israelite city so that their own countrymen can be trusted to do this. So they go further and they go to a Benjamite city and then no one takes them in. No one cares. And what do I, what, what do you see in this section? I talked about narcissism. This kind of self-centered grandiose right? Why does the Levite go to get his wife? Well, cause your property runs away, makes you look bad, right? It's about him. Then you, then you see the father-in-law. Why does he keep celebrating night, night in and night out? Because he's showing off. He's a big deal. He's having a great time with his son-in-law, right? They're rubbing elbows. He's showing how generous he can be. It's a self-centered kind of love. It looks like love. It looks good on the outside. But ultimately, it's empty. Ultimately, it has nothing to offer. See, we are supposed to be loving others by putting them first. We're supposed to be loving others by caring for them, not at their expense, but at our own expense. Am I loving selfishly? Or am I, am I looking for opportunities to love people? Am I looking for opportunities to care for others, to put them first? Or is it just about me? Am I just loving when it's convenient to love? And do I even see people who need love? See, the second thing we're going to see, that's we've seen selfish love. Now we're going to see sightless love. See, here's the next question I have for you. Why is everyone in this story so far nameless? We don't have a single name. We don't have a character name at any point. The only thing that matters about these people to the author is their description. Not not who they are as an individual, as a person. He is using each one of these people to represent something. So we've already seen the Levite. The Levite is supposed to know better. Supposed to. But all we've seen in him is is a self-centeredness. That's even going to get worse as we go. But I want you to keep in mind who represents what aspect, right? There's a shallow explanation of this story that the concubine just represents, like, women, like just women's rights. Uh, there's a... The feminist movement will latch onto this particular Bible story very quickly to show that this is... Well, the Bible's full of the patriarchy. There's just God just hates women and doesn't care for them at all, right? And I'm gonna show you that that's not, there's so much more to this passage. There's something so much deeper going on here than just the fact that she's a woman. Okay? The key to what's happening in this story is that everyone is nameless because everyone is guilty. This story is not about this one guy and this one woman and this one group of people that did something wrong. This story is about all of Israel. So when he says the Levite, he means everybody who should know better. When he says the concubine, he means everybody who's weak without rights. When he says the the Benjamites, he says he means all the Benjamites, right? He is condemning everyone by giving no one a name. He wants you to see inclusive guilt, right? Well, what does that mean for us? That means we're included. Right? Because you don't get to look at this story and be like, yeah, that guy back in the Bible times. No, no, no. The point is you're the Levite, you're the concubine, you're the Benjamite. So like where do you fit in the story? And the lack of name is for you to take your name and insert where appropriate. Okay? So the key is what does each person represent? Look at verse 16. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying at Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And he raised his eyes and saw the traveler in the public square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah. But I am now going to my house, and no one will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and feed for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me and your female slave. And the young man who is with your servants. There is no lack of anything. Then the old man said, peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the public square. So he took him into his house and fed the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Okay. The failure of the community is shown when the old man who is from somewhere else does what everyone else was supposed to do. It's, it shows us that the old man's not from this area. Now, he lives here now, but he's not from here. So the community of Benjamites, they didn't do the right thing. But this old man, why is he described as an old man? He's described as an old man because his key representation is the way the Israelites are supposed to behave. He's showing us a, a an understanding of customs and of God's... Uh, Desire for what kind of society Israel is supposed to be. He represents this idea of like what we should be doing, right? So the old man, he comes up, and and he's going to be the first person to offer to offer this guy a place to stay. Let me ask you this: We throw this word community around a lot. What is community? Is it just a place where you have like some good friends and like good laughs? because I'm telling you right now, you can find it at the bar. That level of community is available for you everywhere in the world. You can can go just about anywhere and find community in a shallow sense. So what is a community when it comes to being in church and and being in a a group like this or Reach on Tuesday nights? What is that kind of community? See, some of you have bought into this idea. And some some of you are still hanging out on the fringes and you want the effect of community to trickle into your life but only as long as it's not inconvenient but the reality is community is about being there for people when they need you the most and the beautiful thing about that is when you live in a community where you are there for people when they need you the most then in the same moment that you need the most help your community will be there for you They'll come through. There's something inherently vulnerable and scary about community. Good. Like honestly, do you do you want to live your whole life in just kind of this safe shell bubble where you just like how's that going by the way? Like you just you walk around insulated from any kind of harm. Does harm not find you? Okay. And here's what happens: people go to like they go to church, they sit in the pew, they do nothing, right? Um, and then. When something goes terribly wrong in their life, they have no one. And they've been in the building with the people who would be there for them the whole time, hoping to soak up community by osmosis, instead of actually plugging in and loving people and caring for people, and then finding out that those same people love and care for them. You have to be plugged into community. And This community that we're seeing right here, it has failed. Right? This Levite, by the way, he's not even asking for a lot. He's got everything he needs except a bed. He's like, I already have I already have everything I need. Just please just let me sleep on your couch. And what, is the, what does the old man say? He says, no, no, no. I'll take care of everything. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of all your needs. Just come home with me. But don't, don't spend the night in the, in the, in the town square. Right? Come to my house. right? He takes him in. Now, I want you to understand something. I started this morning with an illustration that was pretty G-rated. I mean, literally G-rated. Because this is one of the most R-rated passages in the entire Bible. So I'm going to read the next portion, and I just want you to... We're going to walk through together what's happening here, because the picture of evil that we're about to see is is beyond what you see a lot of in the Bible. Okay? So starting in verse 22. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless men, surrounded the house, pushing one another at the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who entered your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this vile sin. Here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Please let me bring them out. Then rape them and do to them whatever you wish, but do not commit this act of vile sins against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight." So this, this is one of the darkest and most depraved moments we see in the whole Bible. It's raw, it's uncut, it is, it's as bad as it gets. But I want you guys to understand why this is in the Bible. Why this is important. Okay. So the first thing I want you to see is that this group of worthless men comes. Now some of your Bibles, does anybody have a Bible in here that says the sons of Belial? Not in a footnote. Mine says in a footnote, but does anybody have sons of Belial? So an old translation of this would have been sons of Belial, and that would have literally translated to the sons of the angel of wickedness, which is another term for Satan. So he's saying these are children of the devil. These are evil to the core men. They've given themselves over to depraved acts and to evil and to hatred in their hearts, right? So they come to the door, and they are going to take this man's guest, and they're going to rape him. That's, that's their intent, is to rape this man. Um, now, I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 19. See if you can spot the similarities. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in, in the evening as late uh, as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he stood up to meet them and bowed down with his face on, to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, but we shall spend the night in the public square. Yet he strongly urged them, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to your house tonight? Bring them out so that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now look, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. Please let me bring them out to you and do and do to them whatever you like. Only do not do anything to these men because they have come under the shelter of, of my roof. And they said, Get out of the way. They also said, this one came in as a foreigner and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and moved forward to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness from, small, from the small to the great so that they became weary of trying to find the doorway. Sound similar? Do you know what's happening here? It turns out There are 69 words, Hebrew words, in both of these portions of Scripture. And a lot of the verbiage and the structure of the story is identical. Why? The author of the story is trying to show you that the people of Israel have become just like the people of Sodom. They're identical. There's no difference between these evil men and the evil men in Lot's day who, uh, you know, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's famous because fire rains down from heaven as judgment for their sins. But these are the people of God in, in Judges. They're not supposed to be behaving like Sodomites. And yet their sin is identical. He does this on purpose. He wants you to see their guilt. Now, one thing I want to address is the offering of, in both stories the offering of the daughter, okay, that comes across like, you're like, whoa, what, I'm sorry, what is happening, right? Now, there are two explanations for this. Uh, Some people will say that this is just another example of women not mattering. This is like a, uh, they don't matter so much that these men don't even care that they, that their daughters would be raped or whatever. Well, in both stories, uh, I think if you take both stories into account, that that is not the, the, correct application of what's happening here. What I actually think is happening happening here is that this is this is an extreme expression. Why? These men, uh, the clear practice here is is attacking strangers, right? You didn't uh, you didn't abuse and attack people in your own community like that were that were like your neighbor, right? And you didn't do anything to your neighbor's Child, either, right? Why? Because they were your neighbors. There was this thing called, you know, blood guilt and, and, you know, revenge and all this other stuff. Like, there's so many consequences. There's this effect to doing something to your neighbor that what you did was you waited until a stranger came and you did whatever you wanted to them, right? That's what, that's the plan of these evil men in both situations. What I think is happening is that in both situations, the expression of do this to my daughter instead, is meant to be so egregious to the men that it's like saying, it is so important for you to not do this that it would be better for you to harm my own family, right? Which would have been understood as, as something you wouldn't do, something you didn't do. So they're they're equating it as saying, this is worse than you coming over here and you attacking my own daughter. Right? The expression, although it sounds like they're literally offering up their daughter, right? What they're actually doing is they're saying, This is that bad. This is so bad that you might as well have come over here and, and raped my own family. Right? Now, here's the interesting thing, though. In the story of Sodom and Lot, the angels that are the guests in the house, they provide a divine escape from this situation. They defend Lot. But we don't get to see if God is going to come through and defend the injustice in Judges because the second class wife is offered up literally. So that is no longer part of the expression of, notice his daughter doesn't go out. right? So he doesn't he says the expression, it would be better for you to have come here and attacked my own family than to hurt this man who I'm who I'm responsible for because he's under my roof. But that gives way under pressure to, well, here, just take this person who doesn't matter. Who doesn't matter to who? Doesn't matter to the, the old man. And apparently doesn't matter to the Levite either. It's his wife. And yet... What we thought in the first portion that he was going back to speak to her heart because he cared for her, he he's clearly sees her as property. She just belongs to him, and in this moment, her going through this, easier than him going through this. So who cares? So this woman is abandoned. This nameless concubine. So who does the nameless concubine represent? what is the key to understanding her place in the story? It's too shallow to be just merely about women. There is something tragic in this about about women uh, being abused by men, Uh, and I'm not taking that away from this story, but I want you to go to the next level of what, what we see here. The key is that this woman represents all helpless victims of sin. She represents people who can't defend themselves from sin and slavery and abuse. She represents the people that we don't see day in and day out as they are dying in their sin. As they're being killed in their sin. See, sin takes, takes victims. I want you to see the verbs that are used. Uh, it says, my, my Bible translates to rape. It's actually the word It the, it's an innuendo. The word is no. They say let us know him, let us, or uh, I'm sorry, it says they knew her, so they raped her, and then it says that they abused her, and then it says that they let her go, or the better translation is they discarded her. That is what sin does to us. Sin, it, it rapes us, it abuses us, and then it discards us and leaves us dead. Now, if we don't see weak and helpless people, sin will take them. Sin will literally carry them off and abuse them and discard them. That is the reality of sin. See, the old man, he represented the old system. But what did he still miss? He cared the way he was supposed to care for the person he thought mattered. For the person that had value in his eyes, but he didn't care for the person who was nameless. He didn't care for the victim that was helpless. And he let her go and be enslaved and abused and discarded. Jesus always stopped for the helpless. And you know what you know what was common about the people he stopped to help? They were often interrupting him. He was a busy guy was on his way somewhere doing something. And people were constantly stopping him. And he always stopped and he always had compassion. And he always helped. Do you feel like the lost are just an inconvenience to you? Like they're just stopping you from getting where you need to go? What are they interrupting? Your pursuit of your American dream? Your career and academic path? Maybe your relationships? Like are those people who are being enslaved to sin and helpless, are they less important than your dreams and aspirations or your nice, comfortable life? here's the thing, if you have been saved I want you to recognize what you've been saved from you've been saved from this abuse and this discarding by sin and if you've been saved from that how can you ignore people who are still held captive do you realize that you are the concubine in this story if Jesus doesn't save you The very grace of God is the reason that you are not the one that is abused and discarded. And that should prompt us into a place where we turn around and have compassion and a heart for those who who need to be saved, who need to be rescued. Is my love selfish? Is it sightless? And is it heartless? We're going to see now heartless love. See, Paul in Corinthians, he goes on a, a rant where he says, if I do any of these grand things in life, but I don't have love, they're worthless. They don't matter. They don't amount to anything. What's the point of anything I do if it doesn't have love? And then Jesus himself, he says, What greater love is there than to give of yourself, your own life, your own body, to give up yourself for other people? And Jesus himself, he died, keep in mind, not just just for us, right, in that sense, but for his enemies. He died for people who were actively hating him so that they could be reconciled to God. He came to save us. Look at verse 27. When her master got up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let's go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man set out and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and seized his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb. Then he sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, make a plan, and speak up. The Levite, we started out this story with this idea that he was a good guy because it says he went to speak to his his wife's heart. And what do we see? He is heartless. He walks out in the morning and he sees her abused and broken and turns out dead on the threshold of the door. And what does he say? Hey, get up. We got to we gotta get going. It's time to go. Time to go home. He didn't rush out in the morning. First of all, he didn't defend her in the in the moment. And second of all, he didn't rush out in the morning to see what happened. He just goes out the door and says, Hey, what are you doing? Get up. We got to go. Right? He doesn't care. And I want you to, to get the picture of this. Again, this passage of the Bible is brutal, but it's important for us to see why this exists in the Bible. This passage, by the way, one of the easiest passages for non-believers to point at and say, that's that's the God. That's the God you serve. He's violent and abusive. I want you to understand something. The violence, the abuse, the negative things in this passage, they're consequences of our actions. They're consequences of our sin. They're because we are evil, not because God's evil. So we have to understand why this is in the Bible. And what we see next is that this Levite gets home and he cuts up this this woman like an animal carcass. He butchers her, uh, completely desecrating her body and her individuality. And then he mails her throughout the land. Now, Uh, verse 30 in the Nazbe, it it quotes the people in the land as talking. But I think what's actually happening here, uh, there's another way to interpret this verse, that the author is actually interjecting a warning. The author himself steps into the story, and he says, think about this. Think about what's happening here, and make up your mind about it. Make up your mind about what this means. The point is, does this horror shake you? Does this shock you? Does this jockey you into action and into response? Or does this not matter? No one sees this concubine until she's been cut up and mailed out. She was nameless and faceless and didn't matter to anyone. And the first time anyone has ever taken notice of her in her life is after she's been completely desecrated, butchered, and sent out. Only when it becomes shocking does she matter to anyone in the story. Does your heart go out to those who are lost in sin or are you only ever shocked by the worst cases in the headlines? See, because we go viral with stuff that's shocking and crazy and we've actually desensitized ourselves to it to a point where it it it's viral for what? A week? Something bad or horrific happened in our country? You know, bad and horrific things are happening all around you all the time? The reality is evil is prevalent in the world. And if we don't care for the people around us who are still enslaved to the evil of their lives, who will? Who will? Christ came to protect those people who were enslaved. In the Bible, it says that God sees birds and cares for them, knows when they die. It says that He has uh, clothed flowers and blades of Grass that He cares for nature, and it says that He has counted every hair on your head. If God is that meticulous with everybody and everything, how can we blindly pass by people in need, lost, enslaved, and being abused? Listen, the rape analogy is so harsh. Intentionally. It's here because sin is... Is that harsh? It is killing us and abusing us. See, in that movie, Emperor's New Groove, the very opening sequence, we see this guy get thrown out a window, right? And Pacha, the main character, comes strolling up and he sees this guy hanging in a banner after he's been thrown out of the window. And what does he do? As soon as he notices him, he goes, oh, and he stops, and he pulls the guy down, and he helps him get cleaned off, and he goes, are you okay? See, he saw him. Something, Somebody who was a piece of meat, who didn't matter in the story to the emperor at all, but the main character right off the bat cares about him, sees him. And that's a nice, comforting, warm, cozy, funny movie. But the question is, do you stop for anyone ever? Are you inconvenienced for the love of other people? Or are you just mad at everyone else who's thrown off your groove? If that guy in New York City was more concerned with his day getting thrown off or himself being in danger than rescuing that, that nameless, faceless woman, he lets his own daughter take all that abuse. And here's the reality. We are supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ with every, every human ever created. That's the goal. So every person that you're passing by, that's your own family member that you are not caring about and not loving. That's someone who should be your brother or sister in Christ. If you had a brother or sister who was enslaved who was in bondage, wouldn't you do everything it took to get them out? That's the picture of all humans in the whole world at all times. This is one of the most horrifying moments of the Bible. Do you see yourself in it? And what part do you play? Are you the Levite or the father-in-law with selfish love, only cared about themselves, Are you the old man who had sightless love who didn't see this person in need who was being victimized? Are you the nation that was heartless that it took this shocking effect of this episode to jockey them into understanding that something was wrong? You only love because you've been shocked into it? I do hope that today's lesson is shocking to you, but I hope that the way it wakes you up is to wake you up in a way that sh- that you should be displaying love for everybody around you all the time. Do you have one of those kinds of love or has Christ's rescue given you a heart for other people? See, there's two kinds of love in the world. There's the love of the saved, which is community. It's sacrificial love. It's displaying the gospel to the people in this room around you, being there for them when they need it. And there's also love for the lost, which is... Bringing people out of slavery, it's sharing the gospel. It's pouring life into those who are, who are, broken and defeated and enslaved by their sin. Do you have a broken heart for the people around you? And I want to add one more, one more note on this. Understand that that this kind of episode can be jarring. For everyone in the room especially if you have have undergone something like this in your life physically and that by the way um, they've shown that there is a significant uh, amount of men that undergo this kind of thing too uh, but because it is considered I mean it's shameful for everyone there's a self-shaming that happens after this this effect but because of the way that that is portrayed on men uh, men are less likely to report, uh, are less likely to, to seek help on this. But I want you to know that if you, if the person that you identify the most with in this story is the concubine, notice that she didn't do anything to deserve this. She was the victim. She was abused and enslaved. And the whole point of church, by the way, the whole point of this community is that you could find people to pick you up out of bondage and out of slavery. So if you, um, if the person you identify most with is the concubine, I don't care, man or woman in this room, I want you to know that I am available. And and when I say that, I mean we will, I will help you to the fullest extent I can. Whether that means we go get you help, real, professional help, but the, but the point is, you know, how could I, how could I. <laughs> Stand up here and teach Judges chapter 19 and then ignore if somebody in this room is the helpless, nameless, faceless victim. I haven't had one-on-one conversations with everybody in this room, but I see each and every one of you, and I am. I pray about you guys every week, and I want you to know that in this place there is safety, there is refuge, there is community. And if you don't want to talk to me, you don't have to. There are so many other people. Even if you just want me to hand you off to somebody who can help you, if you want to talk to my wife, if you want to talk to somebody sitting to your left or your right who, who loves you and cares about you. But I want you to know that if you have undergone some pain and victim victimization of this, that there is hope and there is freedom. And in the same way that My message in this is is one of a spiritual nature, that God rescues us from the sin that seeks to dominate us. But if you have either been in this same situation physically or you are currently in this situation physically, I want you to know that Christ is not only about saving you spiritually later, someday. He also wants to save you right now. He wants to rescue you right now. And I'll do whatever it takes to draw you out of that situation and to help you find shelter and safety. Okay? So I want you to hear me say that because I know, I knew, going into this lesson, this is one of the harshest episodes of the entire Bible. But I want each of you to see why it's here. It's here so we can love other people. And on that note of loving other people, if you are in or have been in the situation of the concubine, I want to love on you. I want you to find freedom and hope and healing from that. Because it's there to be found. Jesus has that. So don't, be, don't sit in your isolation. There is a tragedy in this world of people abusing people. But the message of chapter 19 is that we're not supposed to be those people. We are supposed to be the people showing others the love of a God who cares about them infinitely. That's what I want you to take out of Judges.